0: This is the very beginning of the Sermon on the Mount. Our text will come from the very end of the Sermon on the Mount, which we'll also read in a moment. In this way, we will read the bookends, as it were, of the sermon. So, Matthew 5, and we'll read the verses 1 through 20. Seeing the crowds, Jesus went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. In the same way, let your light shine before others, so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven, but whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. So far from Matthew 5, let's also turn now to Matthew 7, and we'll start at verse 13, and read through the end of the chapter. There Jesus continues speaking, "'Enter by the narrow gate, "'for the gate is wide, "'and the way is easy that leads to destruction, "'and those who enter by it are many. "'For the gate is narrow, "'and the way is hard that leads to life, "'and those who find it are few.'" Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. As we reflect on these things, let's sing together from Psalm 15, all stanzas. This afternoon is from Matthew 7, the verses 24 through 27, and let's read those verses again now. Matthew 7, verse 24, Jesus says, Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell, and great was the fall of it. So far. Brothers and sisters in our Lord Jesus Christ, if you've ever worked in the construction industry, which I've learned in the past few days, many of you do, you would know that the building codes, that building codes are everywhere, and you can't get around them. And ignoring them, if you try, can be very costly. And some of these codes enforce common sense building techniques. You have to have proper ventilation, strong enough support, those kinds of things. Some of them are also unique to the area in which you live. I remember when I worked in the, in the Pacific Northwest and in the Fraser Valley that places in a subduction zone, which means there's earthquakes. And so building codes are tuned to that. They don't just face the possibility even of an earthquake, but the, actu- the actual eventual certainty that an earthquake will come and hit that area. Everyone knows it will come. They simply say when it comes, not even if it comes. And so the government there requires them to build specially engineered houses with foundations and walls in those houses that will endure an earthquake that will hold the house together when that earthquake comes. Well, the Lord Jesus warns us of a similar reality of even greater significance that faces all of us as we build our lives, not just our houses, but all of our lives. A terrible disaster is headed our way, and the wise, the Lord Jesus says, will prepare themselves for that. It may come during our earthly lives, or it may come after we have finished our earthly lives and finished the last chapter in each of our stories, such that they can never again be rewritten And in our text, and then also in the preceding verses, in the preceding context, Jesus has told us exactly what we must do to prepare ourselves for that day. The day is the day of judgment, and he came preaching, this is chapter 4, verse 17, he came preaching, repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. So I preach to you the word of God under the following theme, The Lord Jesus teaches us to put his teaching into practice in anticipation of judgment. And we'll see as we look at this parable two kinds of hearers who are the people that Jesus is warning, then two kinds of builders to which Jesus compares his hearers, and then finally two different results which show the relevance of Jesus' warning. Well, the first thing we should notice in our text in verses 24 to 27 is the exact difference between the people that Jesus is distinguishing, the wise and the foolish man. If we're reading carefully, we notice they're distinguished by the way that they respond to Jesus' words. Everyone, he says, who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. That's the first category. And then the second category is those who hear his words and do not do them. That's the second category. It's critical for us to understand that distinction. Jesus is not making a distinction between those who hear his words and those who don't. No, both groups are hearing his words. The distinction he's making is whether they do what he says or not. So it's one thing then to hear Jesus preach. It's quite another to choose the life that he endorses. And that's the point that he's been making in each of the previous sections prior to our, our text as well. The, the text that we read this morning is the very last part of the Sermon on the Mount, which stretches all the way from chapters 5 to 7. And then in verse 13, Jesus draws a contrast 13 of chapter 7, he draws a contrast between those who enter by the narrow gate and follow the narrow way, and those who enter by the wide gate and follow the the wide road. And and again, there's the same point. There are two choices before all of his disciples. Both people that take either route are his disciples, and there is a choice facing them all. The one is to ignore his teaching and continue to go down the wide way, and the other is to choose the life that he endorses. But it will be a hard life, but it leads to life. Then in verses 15 to 20, Jesus warns his disciples about people who call themselves his prophets, but whose fruit, again, the action, the result, doesn't match their profession. And of course, this is true not only of leaders and prophets, it's also true of everyone who calls themselves Christians. So Jesus says, a good tree bears good fruit, and a bad tree bears bad fruit. You can see who someone is by their fruits. And again, Jesus is not drawing attention to people's profession of faith, who they claim to be or who they claim to follow, but to their actual pattern of life. The final question is, did they bear good fruit? You will know them by their fruits. And then finally in the verses right before our text, 21 to 23, Jesus warns his disciples that there will be many professed disciples, professing Christians, you could also say, who will not enter the kingdom of heaven. It's not enough to call yourself a Christian or to call Jesus Lord. That's a strong warning in verse 21. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. So that's the point that Jesus has been making as he brings the Sermon on the Mount to a close. And that's the point he's also making with this parable of the wise and foolish builder. He wants to say it one more time so it's clear to everyone, there are two kinds of people who will hear His words: those who hear it hear them and do them, and those who hear them and fail to do them. And that, he says, has serious consequences. Well, if that's the distinction, then we should immediately ask ourselves, what words? Jesus says, "He who hears these words and does them. What words? is Jesus referring to? Well, remember, our text forms the very end of the Sermon on the Mount. So when Jesus says, these words of mine, he means everything I have just finished saying. So that's the whole Sermon on the Mount from chapters 5 to chapter 7. So that includes the Beatitudes where he says, blessed are the poor in spirit, blessed are those who mourn, etc. The command to be salt and light in the world. The warning to make sure your righteousness exceeds that of the Pharisees. The warning to be reconciled to your brother. The warning to tear out your your eyes or cut off your hands sooner than accept or tolerate sin. The command to love your enemies. The command to forgive. The commands to fast and pray in secret, to lay up treasures in heaven, to trust in your heavenly Father for all your earthly necessities. The command to take the log out of your own eye before taking the speck out of your brother's eye. Or the command to do to others as you would have them do to you. Or the command to ask the Father for grace and so receive it, to seek it, And so find it, and to knock on the Father's door if you want it to be open to you. And of course, Jesus' words include many, many more exhortations which you find in the Sermon on the Mount. And we could even say Jesus is referring to all of his teaching, not just the Sermon on the Mount, but everything that he taught. In fact, if you read the Gospel of Matthew carefully, you notice all of those same themes coming back again and again in the rest of Jesus' teaching ministry. So the Lord Jesus, in chapter 7 now, has just given all of this clear but radical teaching about what it means to be a follower of Jesus, and he finishes his sermon by contrasting those who hear and listen and do what he says with those who only hear it. That's a pretty bold thing for any teacher to do, isn't it? The verses immediately after our text, 28 and 29, tell us that the crowds were astonished at Jesus' teaching because he was teaching them like someone who had authority and not as their scribes. And that's not surprising. How often do you run into a teacher who says, everything, everything in your life and everything for eternity hinges On the way that you listen and respond to my words. It's a very bold statement for Jesus to make. And if you think about what Jesus is doing here on the Sermon on the Mount from a Jewish perspective, you realize he's filling the shoes of Moses, who else stood on a mountain and taught all of the people the law of God. And we notice here then the Lord Jesus is taking the place of Moses on the mountain and assuming an even greater position than Moses had. He, always, he repeatedly tells them, You've heard that it was said such and such, but now I say to you such and such. What is he saying by this? Well, you once received the law of God from Moses, but now someone even greater than Moses is here. And then just as Moses, if you remember Deuteronomy well enough, Moses finished the law of God by issuing a strong warning to God's people. And Jesus does the exact same thing. You think of what Moses said in Deuteronomy 30, uh, verses 15 to 18. There Moses says, I have set before you today life and good, death and evil. If you obey the commandments of the Lord, then you shall live and multiply but if your heart turns away and you don't hear and are drawn away to worship other gods then you shall surely perish that's how moses finished his delivery on uh, of the law of god on, on the sermon on the mount in that time But now we see Jesus finishes his sermon in a much the same way. And by doing so, he makes it clear to everyone, to all the people there, that they should receive his words just like they would receive Moses' words. And in fact, even more seriously, since now someone even greater than Moses is here. He says, you have heard that it was said, but now I say to you, It's no wonder that the crowds at the very end of it all were amazed at the authority that he had when he taught the people. So the Lord Jesus says, speaking as God himself with all authority, there will be now two kinds of people in this crowd, two kinds of people who hear my teaching. There are those who will hear my words and do them, and there will be those who will hear my words and then decide not to do them. Then Jesus warns his disciples by means of this parable that you have in verses twenty four to twenty seven, and he says, "Everyone who does what he who, who hears and does what he says, he compares to a wise man who builds his house on a rock. And everyone who hears his words but doesn't do them, he compares to a foolish man who doesn't build his house on a rock and builds it instead on the sand." Now, some interpreters of the Bible, including actually many Reformed theologians, have taken this parable to refer to two different foundations, a foundation on the rock and a foundation in the sand. And then many of them would say that the rock is Jesus, or the rock is Jesus' word or something else, and then the sand might be our works or or something else. Well, this way of reading the parable actually misses the point that Jesus is trying to make here. He's not making a contrast between two different kinds of foundations, but between having a foundation or not having one at all. And that's more obvious from the way it's written in Luke. In Luke 6, Jesus, uh, the, the same parable is recorded that Jesus teaches. And there he says, Everyone who hears his words and does them is like a man who builds his house with a foundation. And everyone who hears them and doesn't do them, is like a man who builds his house without a foundation. So that's that's the comparison that the Lord is making. So we miss the point if we try and identify what what are the two foundations? What's the rock and what's the sand and what could Jesus be meaning by that? That's not his point. But his point instead is someone who hears his warning, who listens to his teaching, and yet fails to do them, is as foolish and as short-sighted as someone who builds his house without a foundation. And that makes a lot of sense if you think about the geographical area where Jesus was teaching at the time. Right there around the Sea of Galilee, the, the alluvial sands That would be taken up by the shore. The same would be true from the Jordan River. They would be hard as clay in the hot summer months. And in the valleys too, the ground would have been very firm, very hard. And someone who's new to the area, who moves in during the summer, would would look at it and think, Oh, I can build my house on that. That's very firm, sturdy ground. But when the wet season comes, the rain would seep into the ground and that ground would be transformed into this sandy mud and anything built on top of it would be immediately doomed. It would fall apart very quickly. A wise builder then wouldn't be fooled by surface conditions. He would dig down, sometimes even 10 feet. You find foundations there that are dug even 10 feet into the ground. And then when the, the, the sandy clay... The, this, the, the hard clay turned into sandy mud, then the house would be built on the foundation into the bedrock instead of on that sandy mud. So there's no need to allegorize all of the elements in the parable, what's the rock and what's the sand. The point that Jesus is making would have been very clear to those listening. If you know what's coming, and if someone has warned you about what's coming, and you still decide to to ignore that warning, well, then only a fool would allow himself to be deceived by what looks like pretty good conditions. Things aren't going to stay this way forever, in other words. The one who hears Jesus' words and does them recognizes that, yes, the kingdom of God really is at hand, and he prepares himself for that day radically, if need be. It may be sunny today, and sinners may be getting away with sinning today, but the day of judgment is quickly coming. Will you heed that warning and build or rebuild, if necessary, sensibly? Will you prepare for what's coming? Because it is coming. Now, those who take the rock to be, to be Jesus, they also tend to say that the rain and the wind and the floods and so forth refers to the difficulties and trials of life. And then the idea is if you don't build your, your life on Jesus, then, then the trials of life will wear you down and destroy that house. But again, that seems to miss the point that Jesus is making here. If you look at the preceding verses, like 21 to 23, for example, the threat is very obvious that he's referring to. Those who call Jesus Lord, Lord, but don't do what he says, will not enter the kingdom of heaven. That's the threat that he's warning them about. It's not that they'll be worn down by the trials of life. Many people live into their old age very well and prosper even without trusting in in, in Jesus. But the warning that he's giving has to do with what comes after that life of perhaps prosperity. Then they will want to enter the kingdom of heaven and Jesus will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness." So the danger isn't so much in this life that he's referring to. No, the danger is in the life to come when this life is over. And the same point is is there in verse 19. Every tree that doesn't bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. It's clear he's referring to the final judgment when unbelievers, as well as professing Christians whose fruit doesn't match their profession, will be thrown into everlasting fire. And the same point is made in verse 13. The gate is wide and the way is easy that ultimately leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many. The danger isn't so much in this life. The way is easy, he says. But the danger is at the end of the road. And indeed, that's that's the underlying theme of the whole Sermon on the Mount. In chapter 4, verse 17, Jesus' ministry is summarized by saying, He taught the people, repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. That's the warning that he presents to them. So the rain and the winds and the flood also refer to the wrath of God that is coming on the final day. The unrepentant will not endure the day of judgment. All of us will have to face that terrible day. The kingdom of God is at hand. So what will we do, he asks us, What will we do to prepare ourselves for that day? The wise man will not go on living as if all is normal and as if these current fair conditions is all that there will ever be. He acts immediately and he acts radically to face the coming threat. Otherwise, when that day comes, he knows great will be the destruction. So let's turn our attention then to the results of the two decisions, the wise and the foolish man's decision. And therein we can see also the relevance of Jesus' warning for today. We've seen that the wise man hears Jesus' words and then does them. And does them here means that he takes them to heart and he acts accordingly. Not every, everything that Jesus said was a command. Much of it was instruction that needed to be taken to heart. And then actions would follow accordingly. So when Jesus says, blessed are the poor in spirit. Then the wise man repents of his spiritual pride. When Jesus says, blessed are those who mourn, then he repents of his lack of concern for the injustice in the world or for his own sin and for the desperate need that he and the whole world have for the the kingdom of God to come. Or when Jesus says, everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent commits adultery in his heart, the wise man acknowledges his sin and repents of his sin and his lust and longs for righteousness. In short, he listens then to every word that the Lord, the Lord our God spoke and takes it to heart and repents before it's too late, before that day of judgment comes. And Jesus isn't teaching that we're going to be saved by our works. We shouldn't go down that road and assume that that's what he's teaching. It's not as though he was saying that anything less than a perfect house is going to be swept away in the day of judgment But whether we have repented or not will be measured by our works, by our lives. Our works are the proof of our faith. And he teaches us that will be the measurement that God will use to show whether or not we have indeed repented of our sin. It's the same thing in the Beatitudes. Jesus didn't teach, blessed are those who have never sinned. But instead, he taught, blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who recognize their wretched, sinful state and repent of it, who aren't filled with deceitful pride. And in fact, part of the Lord's teaching in the Sermon on the Mount is the instruction to pray for the forgiveness of our sins. So he's not teaching that only those who are without sin or only the perfect house will endure the day of judgment. Instead, he is teaching that those who are, who are saved will be those who repent and are forgiven. If we don't repent of our sin, if we don't become poor in spirit and humble in spirit, if we don't pray to the Father for forgiveness, in short, if we don't heed Jesus' words, then how could we be saved? So, it's not a call at all to works righteousness. It's a call to confession of sins, to repentance, to humility, to poorness or poverty, rather, of spirit, and to true faith. The kind of life that will survive the day of judgment is not one where the good works simply outweigh the bad works, but one where there is genuine faith which is always then accompanied by and vis- visibly manifested in the the good works and the repentance that he calls us to. As our catechism itself teaches us, true repentance and conversion is to grieve with heartfelt sorrow that we've offended God by our sin and more and more to hate it and flee from it. And it's a heartfelt joy in God through Christ and a love and delight to live according to the will of God in all good works so the the repentance is is what saves us the repentance and forgiveness in Christ but it's going to be manifested by a change of life so what about the foolish man then well he hears Jesus warning and he doesn't take it to heart he maintains his spiritual pride he never hungers or thirsts for righteousness he refuses to be reconciled to his brother. He lays up treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and thieves break in and steal. He doesn't ask for mercy, so he doesn't receive it. He doesn't bother to seek grace, so he never finds it. He doesn't see a need to knock on the Father's door, and so it's never open to him. He may call himself a Christian, but his life bears no fruit to show it. He might say, Lord, Lord, like everyone else in his church or in his family or in his youth group, but he doesn't do the will of his Father in heaven. He says he knows the Lord, but the Lord says, no, I don't think we've ever met before. Well, that man's house, his life, his plans, and his family, if they are like him, they are in a perilous situation indeed. That storm is coming, and then that house, the Lord warns, is still standing without a foundation. And Jesus then adds in the final words of his parable, It fell, and great was the fall of it. We don't need to imagine long what he means by this. The day when God's wrath is poured out against unbelievers will be a day of so much destruction. Every government, every business, every home, and every person that has heard Jesus' warning and not taken it to heart, nor done what he has warned us to do, whether that's in faraway lands or here in Canada, and even, yes, also within the church, Within God's covenant people, that's whom Jesus himself was speaking to, everyone who hears Jesus' words and does not put them into practice, he warns us, will face the terrible burning wrath of God. Well, I think the relevance of Jesus' warning for us in the Canadian Reformed Church today is not hard to see. We belong to a long tradition of Reformed believers who have called upon the Lord and served him faithfully. And in that, we've inherited so many uh, precious treasures, whether that's doctrinally or culturally or in so many other ways. But Jesus' words are still clear. Not all who call him Lord, Lord will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only those who do the will of his Father in heaven. Not because we're saved by our works, but because the genuineness of our faith will be known by our works. We deceive ourselves like the foolish man in the parable if we think that our baptism or our membership in a reformed church or our profession of faith or a prayer that we once prayed somehow guarantees that we will be safe in the day of judgment. Those are all valuable And the promises of God are our greatest treasure, but they are not ever without obligation as well. We do well to remember that Jesus himself was speaking to Jews, speaking to the covenant people who were members of the covenant, and even speaking to disciples who called upon him as Lord. While we have so many treasures in every way, they count for nothing at all if, in the end, we hear God's word and we fail to act accordingly and put it in practice. A life that is untouched by Jesus' words, that is unwilling to repent, is indeed in grave danger in view of the coming judgment. But we must also remember that those who hear Jesus' words and do repent from their sin and are humble and poor in spirit and do hunger and thirst for righteousness, who ask for God's mercy and so receive it, who earnestly seek the Father's grace and there find it, who earnestly knock and humbly knock on the Father's door and so have it open to them, these the Lord Jesus assures us they are like the man who builds his house on the rock with a foundation. When the storms and flood come that are the day of judgment, those houses will most certainly still be secure. And for all that, then, we do not depend on our own strength. Rather, in keeping with Jesus' words, in humility of spirit, as those hungering and thirsting for righteousness, we pray, earnestly for the Holy Spirit to lead us on the narrow way, to bear fruit a hundredfold through us, to stir us up to do the will of the Father, and to hear Jesus' words also here in the Sermon on the Mount, and put them into practice. May the Holy Spirit then ever graciously stir us up to that end. Amen.